Aloha, everybody, and welcome to Aquarian Radio, and I'm your host, Janet Carolesson, with my co-host, Krasana uh, Duran. Uh, normally, T.J. Morris is here, but she's having uh, some difficulties with a family member that's very ill, so she will not be with us today, and she sends her apologies, and she may be out for the next several weeks, depending on the outcome of her family member's illness. But today we're joined by Mike Panicello and Crisana Duran, and we are going to talk about all kinds of things. Mike is the uh, Connecticut MUFON State Director, and let me get his bio here. He was on last week, but we're on a different network, so he was on uh, TJ Morris ET Radio, so you can listen to part one of this on TJ Morris ET Radio on Blog Talk. And I do have the link on AquarianRadio.com. Let's see. But anyway, he's been active in the field of ufology for over 20 years. First is a researcher that is a member of MUFON. And, of course, we love MUFON, and we're going to talk a little bit about his work up in Connecticut where he studies all kinds of UFO-related topics, including the history of UFOs in Connecticut, what are USOs and UFO, USO, USO, the uh, underwater sightings, cryptozoology, and he's been featured in all kinds of state newspapers, and he's been getting around, and welcome to our show, Mike, and one moment, let me make sure I've got Chrisana, let me introduce my co-host first, welcome Chrisana, aloha. Thank you, aloha, back to you. Uh, Tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Uh, the short version of your personal bio, just so they get a feeling about who you are. Okay. Well, I am a UFO contactee, have been. Uh, The first technological craft I saw was uh, typically at age seven, and that would have, for me, was 1953. Um. I have done a lot of research on every facet of UFOs that I can uh, aware of. I have also, I publish a book about Bigfoot called My Brother is a Hairy Man. It was written by Ida Cannonberg with her contact, her Arcturian contact, whom she calls Maze. Um I have I, uh, Ida Cannonberg was an early, early contactee, first generation. Her first UFO contact was 1940 while driving with her husband and his friends who were all in the Army. Um, I'm immensely interested in UFOs, always have been. I balance, I, I always work to balance the... Uh, witness reports with factual data that we can use to back it up. And I'm really happy um, to have this guest who uh, uh, deals with cryptos, you know, the um, cryptozoologist. Yeah, I think that's an exciting connection. So what else would you like to tell us about yourself before I bring on Mike? I think that those are the most pertinent. I do have a book. I've written a book called Web of Life and Cosmos. 
and it's a uh, synthesis of highlights of data about the ancient aliens, the uh, geography of the Earth, which is very, very important when evaluating ancient contacts, and and their philosophies, their their love affairs and their battles, and um, and I think this is a, a background for where we have been, so we can see the road ahead as to where we're going now. Uh, that's the main right. thing. I'm very intrigued that I think and I wonder uh, how the number of Bigfoot sightings compare in, in Connecticut and on the East Coast compare with those on the West Coast. Yeah, that'd be very interesting for me. I, uh, my family, when I go into my family history, we landed at the May, in the Mayflower, and a lot of my uh, relatives lived in Connecticut and Rhode Island, and I have a story about how they came over the Appalachian Trail in a, in a Conestoga wagon in the late 1800s and landed in Pittsburgh. Um, so anyway, we, I've got this tie back there. And I've been, I probably have a lot of relatives in your neck of the woods. That's what I'm trying to say, Mike, because um, yeah. there was only a small thread that came down here, but most of them remained up in Connecticut and Rhode Island, and I, I never got to track them down. So we might be related. Who knows? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so it's Mike, it's possible. Uh, I did my ancestry. Some people say, don't give me your DNA, but I did. And um, oh. it, it ties in with my family's story, with, with, you know, what I heard around the campfire, so to speak, or the evening fire, you know, after dinner. Go to you. What is going on in New England there, especially in Connecticut? What kind of sightings do you have? Are there a lot, the occasional for like UFO sightings or Bigfoot sightings? Yeah, we'll we'll touch on that uh, UFOs and then the uh, the crypto sightings Bigfoot. and what kind of sure. Bigfoot do you see? Well, um, when I was uh, let me just say this, I heard of other beings. There was one a story that came to me when I went to West Virginia, and they talked about the banshee, which was maybe like a werewolf. It was supposed to be a was it a wolf? Wolf? It was supposed to be some kind of um, creature that was not a wolf, but on that line, you know, could run after a, a wagon and, and uh, could attack people. But that was uh, kind of like folklore. But a lot of these things have their roots in some kind of reality. So go ahead. What What do you know about the Bigfoot sightings in your part of the world? Well, most of our Bigfoot sightings um, happen in what's called Litchfield County, and that's over like by the Torrington, Bristol, Watertown area of the state. It's along the, uh, if you're looking at a map, it would be the New York side, the border up north. Um, The lower part is Fairfield County. Everyone always associates Connecticut with Fairfield County, but above that is Litchfield County. It's a very wooded area. Um, most of it is state parks. So there's, you know, there's, there's, um, not a lot of development. There's a lot of water, uh, rivers, lakes, ponds. Uh, and that when majority of our Bigfoot sightings happen, 
there really isn't too many sightings in the rest of the state. And that's mostly because Connecticut is actually pretty developed now. There isn't a lot of forested areas. There's a lot of farm area in Connecticut. Um, but, you know, for a forest where you would normally associate Bigfoot, it's mostly still in Litchfield County. And that's because of the state forests. So there isn't a lot of development. Uh, and uh, the sightings are usually pretty standard that we get. We don't investigate those sightings in Connecticut. This is just a hobby I have on my own. And it's, it's mostly they see them in the woods, um, some interaction, or they hear the noises of like Bigfoot, like the, the growls and the hoots that they make and things like that. Um, they're not as detailed as what you get out west, or they're not as abundant. I think there's only, the last time I looked online, I think Connecticut only had like uh, uh, 11 sightings recently. Um, compared so I mean that's nothing compared to what's out west in the way that their sighting reports come in so we're date for for sightings of Bigfoot uh, maybe he vacations out here or something I don't know <laughs> well they they tend to like wooded areas um do they where do you imagine they live have you researched this are they living underground in caves or where do you think they're actually living like well, Connecticut sleepy at night. I don't know. I kind of like. Well, I, I I haven't done any research with the sightings in Connecticut. Well, what I've been reading about them is, you know, some say they live in caves. Some say they um they might live. I personally, I know this might be a little out in left field, but you know, maybe it fits with the show. I think they're more interdimensional. I, I think that they they. they maybe visit our plane but they don't live in our plane and the reason i say that is one of my one of my mufon co-workers or fellow investigators he lives in another state and um he lives down in west virginia and he's very very big into ufo um and specific particularly into bigfoot he spends more of his time doing bigfoot research and he says a lot of times you know, they'll find tracks and they'll be following these tracks and then they just stop they like disappear and it's almost you know maybe like they go into a portal or something and they just disappear i or some say maybe they get taken up by a ship but i like the idea that they're getting into some kind of dimensional and i think when you look at a lot of the sightings how they just appear and then all of a sudden they're not there i kind of like the idea that they they kind of traverse space and time i mean maybe there's no maybe that's a little too left field but that's kind of the way i think about it I don't think I, I agree. Go ahead, you too, and then I'll t- take the ball. Go ahead. I, I just that, I don't, that's, that's not at all left field. There's so many reports of events like that happening with Bigfoot uh, that they are able to function in this dimension and other dimensions and that that is the, was originally potentials of the human genome. We bred them out, but we used to have those kinds of capabilities too. And we think it's left field only because we've lost our ability to do these things largely. I'm not saying they're totally gone, uh, but I don't think that's at all left field. It's supported with a lot of reports. Well, that's good. I, I, um, 
I truly believe that. I, I would stand by that. If you had to ask me concretely, I know that's what I would say. Um, I well, I would, but I've never seen a Bigfoot person, so I don't know if that matters. I've never seen a Bigfoot, but I there's a historical record. Um, Toth Nigashita left a historical record that the um, there were beings that came interdimensionally into this realm, and they were taking over. This gets into possession. But they were taking over um, the the members of their Congress. You know, their 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 power elite <laughs> individuals that were in control of their world there, and they were taking over. And so he discovered this. And he writes about this in, in the Emerald Tablets, and he discovered it, and he was, he was appalled. He said, oh, my God, these interdimensional beings are taking over. Our... So we got, in, we got into things like shape-shifting, and it, but then it ties in with the ufo, ufo, ufology. I see, right outside my window here, I've seen several crafts that they materialize from another dimension, like right in front of your eyes. You're looking at them. They don't zoom in, come down, you know, go across. They're just all of a sudden visible and I saw one that looked like it twisted like a pretzel <laughs> it was like it was all twisted and then it straightened out and it um, appeared right in front of my eyes like literally in front of my eyes I didn't have to raise my eyes or lower them or go right or go left so it was interacting with me it showed itself to me it started to communicate with me telepathically and I was on the phone with TJ when it started to talk to me. So I was conveying to her what was going on. And then I, I thought I'm going to take a picture of it. And it said, if you move to get your camera, we will blink out. So I, I uh, didn't do that. Anyway, I've had personal um, information. People can believe me or not. I don't know, but um, I know what happened to me. So that ties in. But Bigfoot um, appears to be, if you go into the ancient aliens and the story of uh, the Anunnaki and the Sumerian records, he appears to be the uh, prototype human that they, they use Homo erectus, erectus genes, Bigfoot genes, and you know hybridize that with the Anunnaki to create Homo sapiens sapiens. So we'll pass it back to you, Mike. What would you like to add? We're going to kind of go round table with a invisible talking stick, okay? So we'll just okay. keep going around and everybody share everything. It's okay. We're going to share it all. Well, the um, thing that you were mentioning about the shapeshifters, immediately what jumped out to me was Skinwalker Ranch and the Skinwalker, the shapeshifter. If you've mm-hmm. read that or looked into that. and um, I haven't read I'm, that book or interviewed anybody. Can you kind of fill us in about for our listeners and uh, for me and for Christana, what what were they? What was going on there? What was the conclusion? Well, the book. I read the book. I haven't really done any research on my own outside of that. So that's the book ends okay. with, you know, Robert. So it's it's a it's a family. It's a it's a, a uh, it's a ranch in Utah, and, and the name of the family is escaping me at the moment. But um, they bought a ranch that had all kinds of unique things happening. And I remember, for example, they report um, like seeing portals open and craft coming out, uh, different size craft, different shaped crafts. They reported seeing orbs, uh, different color orbs, blue orbs, uh, 
red orbs, orange orbs, white orbs. And um, these orbs were intelligent. I remember one part of the book, um, it was a blue orb, and it was standing in front of the father of the family. And it looked like they, he was the orb was trying to communicate. There's also a reference that the, that the orb was moving out, and the two dogs chased it, and then the orb some kind of like zapped him and killed their dogs. Um, it was researched and written by uh, George Knapp. If you don't know who he is, he's rather famous in the UFO field. He interviewed uh, uh, Bob Lazar, and you know he's he's had some really good stories uh, in the field, and he's made a name for himself. And I think he's a pretty credible reporter because you know he still does that as a living even today for the local Vegas news uh, television series. I think he's on ABC or Fox. I don't even remember now. But he's still, he's still active. The ranch was originally then bought by Bigelow, and everyone knows Bigelow's history. He's kind of a mystery in the field. You know, he has his own cryptic past. And he brought in researchers. And now in the book, this is what was interesting, and I don't really believe this, that they said they did the two years of research on the on the farm with um, all kinds of scientific equipment and cameras, and they didn't really come up with anything concrete. Whereas at the first half of the book, you're getting all these witness statements from the family that lived there, and they're telling you about all these craft, and like I was mentioning before. So I don't really believe that. They also talk about the skinwalker, and it, I guess it's the, my understanding of the skinwalker is that it's a, it's a shapeshifter um, in Native American mythology. Usually they're not nice, they're evil. Um, they kind of terrorize people. Uh, and the, the Native Americans stayed away from that part of Utah because they knew the Skinwalker lived in there. So they, they stayed away. Um, the family does have experience with the Skinwalker because they, have, they, they mentioned twice these very large, um, abnormally large masculine wolves that they encounter. The, the, the father, the husband of the family, shoots them, uh, shoots the wolf, and they don't die which, you know, with a high-powered rifle, usually a wolf would die. Um, so it's it's very, well, very interesting. Let me just it's say this, Ranch, that by the way. Sounds like, that sounds like the, the creatures that I heard about the, from the people I visited in West Virginia. So I hadn't heard of what, the, you know, what they looked like. So they were wolfing, but they weren't really wolves. They knew they weren't wolves. That they like demonic. They couldn't. Yeah, they couldn't die. You had to get away from them. Um, so I, that's interesting. I hadn't heard this part. But go ahead, continue. Fascinating. Thank you. So um, I did a little googly why I was talking to you. It was the ranch was acquired by the National Institute for Discovery Science to study that phenomenon that was going on there. Um, but that is owned by Robert Bigelow. Um, who actually founded that in 1995. Um, that's the group that I said that went out there. It's also known as the mm-hmm. Sherman Ranch. It's approximately 512 acres southeast of um, Ballard, Utah. Uh, so it's a Navajo legend. Uh, they're mm-hmm. considered uh, uh, witches. Um, so mm-hmm. When, I, when you mentioned that, that's kind of what I thought of, and to get that, and now I went off on my tangent. So I, I'm sorry, I forgot the original 
question, but with the Native <laughs> Americans matter. and Bigfoot. Oh, okay. But it also reminds me of the Native Americans. <laughs> oh, okay, that's good. But it also reminds nope. me um, with the Native Americans and with Bigfoot because, you know, the Native Americans, they've had Bigfoot stories in their mythology since before Western Westerners even came out there. I mean, they, this goes back generations for them. And if my, if my understanding is right, maybe you could clarify this if you know, but they were kind of at peace with the Bigfoots. I mean, they just accept them as part of nature and, you know, no big deal, if I remember correctly from my research. So it's always interesting how the Native Americans are more at peace with this than Westerners. And we're like, we want to find these things and prove them that they exist. And I don't know. I like that dichotomy between the two. It's maybe that's why they have more, more luck with these things, seeing them and interacting with them than Westerners. Cause they sense that they're, they're more peaceful people than, than, than some of us. I don't know. And that's, well, um, native Americans or many native Americans, specifically, uh, up in Northern California view Bigfoot as its own tribe. It's like, they're not, people like us but they have a culture they have a um, an internal organization of their activities that that, that is like a tribe and um, their economy is like based on fish and that sort of thing natural uh products, natural phenomena in the world. And this is coming from, a, well, a study of Bigfoot at the Hoopa, on the Hoopa tri, uh, tribal lands. Um, I can't remember his name, but he's done a lot of research on um, on Bigfoot. And I, I uh, used to work for an Indian organization in that area. Some of our employees were Hoopa Indians, and they tell similar stories. And they actually, like I said, they actually view uh, Bigfoot as a, as a tribe. Mm. Right. Interesting. And, then, and you know, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. You, you can finish your, do you want to finish your thread? And I have one. I have something to add to this. <laughs> this uh, well, what I was going to say what I was going to say, and you're mentioning West Virginia brought that up, brought it to mind, is that in some ways these stories that you're talking about are shades of Mothman. Yes. And in the, mm-hmm. okay, and in the Mothman book. The movie uh, really didn't do justice to the book. Oh, the movie but, was terrible. Uh, yeah. I mean, you couldn't follow it, right? It was just all over the place. But the book was coherent. And one of the things that John Keel brought out in the book is that West Virginia was an area that when the white race arrived, the Indians either, they didn't go near it often. It was almost like a a sacred land, and uh, uh, which, to my way of thinking, suggests that perhaps there was an underground civilization or um, 
tradition connected to it. You know, like the, uh, the perhaps there were inner earth cities in that area of West Virginia. And that was my conclusion. That's just my, pardon me, my opinion. But, um, you know, the wolf, wolf that you're talking about, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it has, it has shades of Mothman in it. And yes. these stories are quite common among Native Americans who view this as a, just a natural way of life. However, when the white when the white settlers arrived, and we find we find this tendency, it's prominent in the Smithsonian, where their focus seems to be justifying the white settlers' possession of the land. So they basically take apart the sacred traditions and the paranormal traditions of Native Americans, which could be viewed sort of on the lines of sacred tradition, uh, in order to make it okay to possess the land. So it's a good thing that you brought that up, Mike. Uh, Yeah. The interdimensional nature, because wouldn't it be something if when we, you know, like on the Skinwalker Ranch, we find that interdimensional activity is actually the natural state uh, of the human culture and uh, and Bigfoot and many animals and that we've taken it apart to make it easy to control. Just a thought. Yeah. A good one. And I want to add to yep. the, yeah, I want to add to the Mothman thing, and then I'll pass the talking stick back to you, Mike. Um, sure. When I was a little girl, I happened to be down at my <laughs> park. It was summer. Um, let's see, I was nine years old, so let's see, uh, it's probably sixty. Uh, let's see, sixty-three, sixty, yes, sixty-three. And I was there the day, uh, and I didn't see it, but I heard people writing out to me, and did you see it? Did you see it? And that was the what was the Mothman. The Mothman came to Avalon, Pittsburgh, and it went to, around our local park in, on a hot summer's day, and all the kids were there, and it was in the day, and um, they were saying it's up in the woods there, so it landed in the woods. They said it was mm-hmm. very um had a giant wingspan, you know, six feet, eight feet, and it was tall. Um, and then the, the press came down, the newspaper came down, and they took a photo of all those kids and adults, and everybody was running around trying to find this um, creature. And for years, I dismissed it in my mind. I went, oh, that, that was too crazy. That wasn't real. That, and then the Mothman book came out, and then the movie, and I go, yeah, we witnessed it. So and then one one other thing about these uh, interdimensionals. So in Hawaii, uh, in Iao Valley, which is the next valley over from my property, they have the Hawaii Hawaiian Nightwalkers, and they, oh. you know, to explain it, they they say that these are um, armed spirit warriors en route 
to or from battle, toting archaic weaponry, clothed in decorated helmets and cloaks. And other accounts tell of a high-ranking elite ruler, spirits being guided to places of high importance or to welcome new warriors to join a battle. So I heard for years about these stories of these night walkers. Now I'm the next valley over. So one morning I, I, I get up early. I usually wake up with the sun somewhere between 6 and 7. And I like to uh, stay in bed and write in my journal. And I'm writing in my journal. And I, and I look, and there's a lady uh, with the long, long white hair and a robe, and she's walking past my window. And I go, oh, what's that? Who's walking past my bedroom window, which is in the very back of my house? And then all of a sudden she floats, and she goes up the hill. And she was solid. You couldn't see through her. I thought it was a real person until all of a sudden she floated and went up the hillside. And I said, oh, that must be something to do with these night marchers. That might have been, you know, something that was associated with that. And here they were on my property. Anyway, there's all kinds of tales, all kinds of stories of uh, these interdimensionals. So back to you, Mike. Yeah. yeah. The one thing I was just going to add to that is, if I remember correctly, in the John Keel book, he does mention Bigfoot being seen at the time of these Mothman sightings. And then when Bigfoot is seen, there was craft in the sky also being seen, too. So he kind of links yeah. Bigfoot with UFOs, if I'm not mistaken, in the book. Bigfoot yeah. absolutely is linked to UFOs. Uh, I want to make I want to point one thing out, though, about uh, uh, Janet, the period that you were talking about when uh, when these events were happening in your childhood, you gave the date, 1963, right? I, I'm thinking it was 63. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, that is the period when... Um, just prior to the famous bridge collapse that was it was fair to say Mothman was trying to warn us of the danger because that collapsed on December 5th 1967 and it was the bridge between that crossed the Ohio River and uh, so it was between Ohio and I don't remember the other end of it but I think it was West Virginia so these are right. not unrelated. They are related by similarity in time, 63 to 67 in there. And then after that, the whole Mothman phenomenon got very quiet. That was in John Keel's book. But they did still make appearances. And so I just and, am and pointing I, it that out. Been, it could have been... Later, I could be putting myself younger. I don't really, I didn't, I didn't make note of it. It was just interesting. I know my mother for years kept the, the newspaper because there was Janet on the front page, right? But I don't really know exactly when it was. I, it was when I was still young, and I was. They, the park has a swimming pool, and that's where we went every day. So yeah, I would, I would say that it could have been '67. I really don't know. I just know I was young. Well, that was the day of the bridge collapse. It was 67. So it was in that period when the Mothman activities were very 
Um, so I wanted to point that out and say Bigfoot has a huge connection with UFOs. Mm. And I will tell you, John, um, do you mind if I just... Mike. Uh, Mike, I'm sorry. Just yeah. mention uh, an event I had with Bigfoot sure, and UFOs. Sure, go ahead. Yeah. No, I'd love to hear it. Uh, Please. Well, <clears throat> I went camping. I was living in Washington State. And a friend of mine called and said, you want to go camping with us? We're going out to uh, the mountains this weekend, and you're welcome to come. So, I, you know, I did go. And I didn't really, I knew one person really well. I knew the other one only very peripherally, peripherally. Didn't know her well at all. But they were laughing at me because I was talking about UFOs and Bigfoot. Well, there happened to be a lot of UFO sightings in that area, which neither one of them knew because they just weren't paying attention. And so one of them, the one I did not know well, um, saw a big, okay, so we're in the mountains and we're at the foot of a mountain. And when you looked up, there was a ridge that was highlighted by the moon. And, oh, and I have to say that uh, when the evening started, I told them there are UFOs in this area because I can see them behind the clouds. And they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, right? So they were making fun of me. And then the one that I barely knew uh, got all excited. She said, oh, my God, there's a Bigfoot up there on that ridge. Wow. And you could you could see him just as big, and he came out of a UFO. There had been a UFO over the ridge, and then Bigfoot appeared on the top of it. And so I thought, you know what? I, I'm not at all happy with the way they were laughing at me, and they wouldn't pay attention to me like I'm trying to tell them. There are UFOs in this area tonight because I can see the flashes of light behind the clouds, and you know, the amazing thing is they wouldn't look to see. It was like, oh, I'm not even going to look for that. Well, anyway, so then the woman, after she saw the Bigfoot appear on the mountain ridge, after the UFO left, I thought, this is my chance. I said, well, I don't believe you. Prove it. Mm -hmm. Right, which of course she couldn't, but I am absolutely convinced that she did see Bigfoot, and she didn't. She didn't know that there was a connection between them, but there definitely is, and she saw it. And we were in an area near an Indian reservation where there were Bigfoot located, mm. were big with Bigfoot sightings. So, um, so anyway, there is, as far as I'm concerned, and believe me, they were trying to convince me it was true, and they just couldn't prove it to me. And I said, well, just tough luck. I'm not going to yeah. listen to you, right? So anyway, um, uh, I always wondered 
if there was some uh, madness, a method in the madness of how Bigfoot made and and the UFOs made their appearance out there in those mountains that night. So, I'm yeah, I'm just pointing out the strange uh, coincidences of what had happened, uh, and I have always been able to see. When when uh, UFOs come in, I don't know why I can see them, but I can see the lights cut behind the clouds and know when they're going to be uh, coming in. And it's sort of like through a interdimensional portal. Like I think personally that UFOs, real UFOs, not the military craft, but that they enter our dimensional stream through wormholes, through portals between dimensions. And so there's some uh, backup for your your belief about the interdimensional qualities mm-hmm. of these things. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense because especially with the Skinwalker Ranch example, the, the, the family, and there's several of them in this family, clearly state that they saw a portal open and craft came out of it like a physical craft, it's different shapes and sizes, but yeah, not, not like a spirit or an aberration or anything like that, but like a craft. And, uh, yeah, I, I, there's a lot out there that we just don't know about. And I, 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 your friend who was kind of reluctant to or give you a hard time on that. It's so common with, with we get with witnesses today, you know, they're, I, I it's, it's too bad. People are not more open-minded about, this stuff, or at least supportive if they're not open-minded. Well, you know, it challenges their fundamental assumptions about reality. Like the Native American has a long tradition of equivalent of activity equivalent to interdimensional travel. I work in Native American studies, and I participated with Wallace Black Elk ceremonial Uh, in ceremony and he used to make fun of of researchers who you know uh, professors who would contact him and uh, want to know why these things are happening and he would just go oh my god what's wrong with these people can't they see so it's fun it really and, and then of course there's always the domination factor where our culture, the white culture, is really uh, founded on dominance, domination. And these perceptual states just can't be dominated. So if you want to be the big guy on the block and you cannot um, master the interdimensional reality of these things, you just deny them. And uh, and then you'll have a lot of believers that follow along behind you because they can't do it either, because they don't they don't believe in it and they don't work at it. And see, a lot of ritual, Native American ritual, is about opening doorways that we would call interdimensional doorways for for events to happen. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you're aware well, of that. I don't know. If 
spent much time with Native Americans, that there is a lot of that in Native American. And I will tell you, I, in not, I do predictions. And in 2012, I had predicted that the um, Thunderbird was coming back. There would be sightings of Thunderbirds, which is very similar to Mothman in its basic nature, and that it would happen in August. And I began my heads up on that was from uh, uh, an Indian tribe where they actually had a vision of um, <clears throat> that indicated, you know, that indicated this was happening. Like the Thunderbird is a, uh, makes appearances periodically in history. Like sometimes you can see the Thunderbird, and sometimes they just disappear for a long time. And uh, they had been doing a ritual, and and they and a, and a Thunderbird made an appearance, and that was my signal that the conditions were right for the Thunderbird to appear to us. And by God, it did. <laughs> so anyway, I I wanted to add something. I, I'm looking at this. I, I googled Pittsburgh and Mothman. So it ended up that the uh, film was a lot of was filmed in Pittsburgh. Um, but in 19 November 16, 1966, in the Pittsburgh Gazette. Uh, there was a report that residents in Port Pleasant, West Virginia, had seen a bird-like creature, six to seven feet tall, with red eyes and a ten-foot wingspan. And over, a little over a year later, the bridge collapsed. So I'm thinking that that summer of '66, before they weren't until November, we may have seen the being. Because I know the reason why I'm using this marker is because. I wasn't dating Kenny yet. <laughs> By the summer, when I was 13, I was dating. I was definitely alone at the park and wasn't dating Kenny. So I think that we probably saw the Mothman before the other people saw the Mothman. Um, okay, I'm going to pass it back to you guys. I'm going to take a little break here, but you guys continue while I'm gone. I'll be right back. <clears throat> okay, yeah, so well... Go ahead. No, no, you go. I, I'll, you take the lead. No, you're the guest. <laughs> no. Well, I was just going to say that, you know, um, I, I think, uh, I don't know about in Connecticut, you know, I always wonder, you know, we, we're a very populated area, but we don't get a lot of sightings. And yet we're a very... Um, we have a lot of defense contractors in our state, and you would think that you would have sightings when they're they're testing stuff. But more right. or less, uh, our sightings are, are are all around us. You know, New York, upstate New York, with you know the Hudson Valley UFO sightings, and um, mm. yeah, we have Pittsburgh. I mean, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Florida. It's it's interesting how there's these pockets of of condensed UFO sightings. Same thing with the Bigfoot sightings. Um, you know, there's these pockets where you get like very high UFO, uh, UFO sightings, you get very high um, Bigfoot sightings, and even Mothman sightings. There's, I don't know of any Mothman sightings in Connecticut, to my knowledge. I could be wrong. Someone could call up the show and say, yes, there is. But 
we've I don't believe we've ever had a Mothman sighting in Connecticut. So it's 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 interesting how certain parts of the country are more active than than other parts of the country, and you kind of wonder why that is. Well, let me ask you: Were the mound builders active in Connecticut? I haven't really looked into that, to be honest with you. Well, I have a theory that the um, mound builders did virtual terraforming on the Earth because I I um, have done quite a bit of research on their places where they that they left behind, and of course mm-hmm. we don't know anything about those sites because. They had they they had disappeared by the time the whites showed up, but there seems to be, in my opinion, a uh, propensity of um, paranormal activity around mound builder sites. Hmm. And I'll use the the Serpent Mound in Ohio as an example, but um, it's an interesting observation. That and it's very true that UFO activity and paranormal uh, activity of Bigfoot and Mothman and those kinds of events seem to occur in certain areas. And um, Connecticut just isn't one of those areas. I'll bet you they don't have a lot of. Mound builder sites up there, because in areas with mound builder sites and where the there have been constructions of uh, stone constructions, you do get them. You get more. What are your other? What are your other observations? What? How about your other observations of uh, UFO and? Cryptos in Connecticut. Are there any? uh... Yeah. Well, one of my observations I've noticed is we've gotten a lot of, we're getting a lot of triangle sightings in Connecticut. That's, that's really spiked. You know, Connecticut, I I mentioned this last week's podcast, I think about how the Hudson Valley UFO sightings was a lot of triangle sightings amongst other shapes, but a lot of triangles and, um, we are getting more of those now. They died off a lot. And for a long time after Hudson Valley, we had some spillover into the 90s and, and 2000s. And then when I got involved <laughs> when I got involved with UFO investigations for MUFON in the middle of uh, the 2000s, um, we had a lot of orb sightings was, was popular. But over the last few years, um, particularly along the Connecticut-New York border, uh, we've had an increase in triangle sightings again. And uh, I kind of wonder if they're they're having maybe the start of a new wave. It'll be interesting to see how this Mm -hmm. progresses over time. It's nothing to the level of the Hudson Valley UFO sites. I mean, they were getting hundreds of sightings a day. They had thousands of sightings over the course of the entire wave. But it's 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 interesting to see this trend of an increase in triangle sightings after you know it went down. We were in a lull. We had um orb sightings, but now they're coming back and they're along the Connecticut New York border and 
um, it's I'm kind of wondering like why you know what what's going on is it is it our craft um, is it someone else yeah. is it yeah Mike I it, think that the triangles uh, from my whistle uh, they like to call <laughs> witnesses from my witnesses that are coming forth uh, my show and other shows. They uh, it's called the SR3B is the small triangular craft, and then the yeah yeah. TR3B right, and then the large. No, I am aware of that. Um, they said the Phoenix Lights is uh, like TR11 or something like that. Anyway, I had several of the um, witnesses coming forth, and people claiming they've been on it, and that's a a craft they use it for this, and they use a triangle. I have a, a witness that says that that's used to go beyond the solar system. It's uh, capable of time, space, uh, uh, faster mm. light travel. And, you know, the, the, the secret space program is supposed to be way in advance what they're letting us see. But right. uh, I just wanted to put that in there. The other thing is, um, when I was a child, I saw a lot of um, spacecraft, UFOs. And back in, uh, the, uh, let's say, the 60s, uh, around the same time, so this was 66, that um, the Mothman. So in that period, Pittsburgh was a hotbed of UFO activity. And I would see things every night just about. So I like to sleep outside in the summer. And I would invite my friends. And I'd say, okay, you don't believe this? Sleep out with me and we'll, we'll show you some stuff. So we would see orbs. They were large, very large orbs. Um, I'd say about 20 feet in diameter, but who knows what the real sight was. <clears throat> but it wasn't like you, you know, you put your finger up and it looked like you could block it out with your finger. It was, it was huge. I saw three of them. They were bright colored, like bright yellow, bright orange, bright green, bright red, bright blue. And they usually traveled in threes and they would be over Neville Island. Now, I think there's a uh, connection with this industry. Now, this is in the city, in the middle of summer, right over Neville Island, where they produced the, the steel mills. And that was very active all the way through the 60s. So I just wonder if what uh, kind of connection there was with that. Any ideas? Oh, and then I saw the cigar-shaped ones. So are we seeing different craft over time in different places? So I was coming home uh, and that was 66. Yeah, I was coming home, and uh, I had been visiting my boyfriend, and I came up the stairs to my house, and I felt something watching me. And I turned around, and I looked down the street, and it was right over the treetops. It wasn't very high. It wasn't a large tree. It was just a normal tree that lies in the street, right? And there was a very large uh, cigar-shaped craft, and I could clearly see windows, and I could clearly see, couldn't make out the exact shapes, but I could see that there were people in there, beings, watching me. The other thing that happened was suddenly all the crickets stopped cricketing. So that was probably August of 66, and suddenly there were no cars. I lived on a fairly busy street, even that was about nine nine thirty. There would have been uh, a car here, a car here and there coming down this street. There were no cars, no crickets, and um, I watched them for you know a long time. And I finally said telepathically, 
you know, in my own, in my head. I didn't speak the words. I said, thank you for showing me yourselves. I'm going to bed now. I'm tired. And I went up into the house. But I didn't tell anybody because of the ridicule you get. Yeah. Okay, I'm passing huh. the talk stick. Whoever wants to talk, go ahead. No. Well, on the Hudson Valley sightings, where were the majority of sightings concentrated? In the north, the south, or in the Central Valley? They were all over the place. I think probably the north. Um, okay. Around by the Pine Bush area, I believe. Up by Rome, New York, I think where a lot were coming from. But they were reported all over, all over the New York area and in the Connecticut. In fact, I was teaching an adult ed class in Connecticut in Vernon uh, on UFOs, and there was someone that was like, I saw it in West East Hartford uh, during the Hudson Valley UFO flap, and that was East Hartford is right next to Hartford, so all the way that far east. Well, I'm I'm going to tell you. Mountain builders were in, uh, I think, mainly the northern portion of New York. And even right now today, there are uh, structures that were left in place by the Indians in that area, uh, which leads me. And there is an area, i got to remember the name of the Indian tribe, uh, where water runs uphill. And that is definitely in New York. So there are anomalies in the, let's call it the terraform, because I think the mound builders basically did terraforming to get the effects they wanted in certain areas. Because if you look at the way the mound builders, uh, it's like they sculpted a landscape. And it was like, very similar to uh, the designs of the authentic crop circles, not something someone made up, but the mound builders used similar geometries and themes as the um, crop circle makers. And I think that they are working on the energies of an area. And I will tell you that in northern Hudson Valley, there were uh, structures up there, and uh, I think the mound builders were active in northern New York. So, and I don't know why researchers don't look into these things to say, wait a minute, the ancients were doing something with these in fabulous structures in mounds. They were building these mound structures for some reason could they be generating and directing energy to certain areas that would be attractive to ufos and possibly even cryptids like bigfoot um mothman and and uh entities like that <clears throat> i guess it's possible there's a lot we just don't know or a lot that's being suppressed I think like a lot of our history or ancient history is I think being purposely suppressed well they destroyed them mm-hmm. um, a, a, a couple 
who are part of the Edgar Casey Foundation uh, wrote about um, the activities of this, you know, activities of this kind, uh, specifically the mound builders. And they basically, their structures, their texts, their culture was just deliberately destroyed, and in the re- in recent years they've started reconstructing it. Uh, and uh, you can find that book on the uh, Edgar Casey site, the ARE site, Association mm-hmm. of Research and Enlightenment, about the mound builders, because he worked closely with archae- uh, with anthropologists who reconstructed what they could of what the mound builders had left, but so much of it had been de- has been destroyed. So it's not that we didn't know, it's that we eliminated it. And that is exactly what the Smithsonian Institute has been accused of doing. If you get a bunch of artifacts and you don't understand them, just either hide them in the basement or destroy them. And they've dumped numerous artifacts in the ocean because to get rid of them. Mm. And of course, we're the ones who need to know. So here we are at the the other end of American history going, well, whatever happened to their culture? How did it get so destroyed? But what we know of it is phenomenal. It is like the theory of crop circles laid out on the land in mounds. Um, like, has it occurred to anyone that these things have energetic purposes? I mean, it's like the uh, serpent side up in Ohio. You know the serpent mound? Yeah, the serpent mound was supposed to be built probably by the Anunnaki if we want to get into ancient aliens. But, well, you know, we, you we know, did have an original energy grid that went around. You know, we're, we're now tying uh, in all these pyramids and monoliths and everything and finding through LIDAR uh, technologies these giant cities mm-hmm. in uh, South America. They're, they're now visible with the, the equipment coming from the satellites. And so we're gradually uncovering all this. But on a personal note, I just wanted to add, when I was a kid, a couple times, I, I used to like to take uh, hikes with my, a bunch of my friends, and we'd go to wooded areas, and then we would hike in and out of the wooded areas and leave our bikes. Imagine doing that now, leaving your bike, <laughs> bike somewhere and expecting them to be there when you get back. But they were there. And so we would hike into these different woods that we would access. And this is this is very close to the Pittsburgh area um, Avalon side, the north side of Pittsburgh, going down the Ohio River, that's where we lived. And um, we would encounter mounds. And I remember coming across this mound and saying, this is not a natural uh, phenomenon. And so somebody would say uh, Native Americans had built them. That's what they, that's how they rationalized it. But, you know, we were kids trying to make sense out of these giant mounds. Are there are there people buried there? What's the purpose of that? What's in there? So very curious. But it, it's like the mounds were not, they didn't disappear. The trees didn't grow on them. 
that grew around them, they were totally visible. So there must have been some kind of, thinking back, there was probably some energy in there. Because why didn't the giant trees grow on top of them and make them disappear? No, you'd be in the middle of the woods, some of these are clearing, and there's a, a mound. And it's like, wow, what's going on here? Anyway, um, what else would you like to talk about? Let's uh, go back. Mike, pick a topic. What would you like to discuss? Um, how about USOs? USOs, okay, underwater submersible options. Okay. So tell us about USOs in, in Connecticut. And all of them. Yeah, just USOs. <laughs> well, <laughs> we don't have very many uh, USOs in Connecticut. We have Long Island Sound, which is like 10 feet deep. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but it's it's not very deep. So they don't really come out our way, um, unless maybe they go to vacation or for the seafood. But we do get um, we do have a lot of sightings of UFO of craft over water bodies. I don't know if you've you've heard of that before, but I worked a case once, and this is always an interesting case. It was it was a historical case, meaning that it happened in um, happened in the, the late '80s, and. The witness came out and a couple of years ago. He said he finally wanted to report it, and he was in a town called Colchester, Connecticut, which back in the in the eighties was was rural. I mean, it's it's rural now. It's wooded and rural, and not a lot of people are neighbors that are within walking distance of each other. It's a very <laughs> scattered town. Anyway, <laughs> in Connecticut, the way our I'll give you some background. In Connecticut, the way our our state police works is. If a town doesn't have a big enough population, we have what's called a resident state trooper. And the state trooper is in charge of that particular town. And the reason I bring this up is because this witness was out one day and he saw a craft. It was uh, He described it as a saucer-shaped craft. Uh, and it was hovering above his house. And he went out and he was watching this craft. And slowly mm-hmm. this craft um, goes over and starts descending to a little pond that he has in his backyard. And it was hovering above the pond. And he got really freaked out, so he called the resident. He called the, the police, which brought the resident state trooper out. And uh, the resident state trooper and him both went out and were looking at this craft just hovering above the water. And they only thought it was for like maybe 10 minutes, 15 minutes. They didn't think it was very long. But when the um, trooper went back to his car to report in, uh, the dispatcher said, you know, where have you been? You've been out of contact for two hours. His wife, um, when she saw him come in the house, she was like, where have you been? You've been gone for two hours. We were, <coughs> um, we were actually able to find the state trooper who was now retired, but he wouldn't talk to us. He didn't want anything to do with um us on this he just he ignored our requests for uh, for an interview so we never got a secondary confirmation but it was always interesting to me about the connection between ufos and water whether they're in the water but so often they're above the water and in connecticut you know we don't really have any kind of ocean we have long island sound like i said which isn't very deep but we have a lot of cases where a ufo would be above a lake um, there's a, a lake a reservoir that we have that's huge. It's called Barkhamstead Reservoir up in Litchfield County, again, where Bigfoot is located. 
uh, well, well, the sightings mostly happen. And we have cases of people seeing UFOs hovering above that particular lake. So I always like the connection between UFOs and water. Uh, and uh, there seems to definitely be one. So that's that was that's probably the way I'd start off the conversation. And you kind of wonder, there's a lot of evidence for underground bases. I read these two books. I don't know if you've ever read them before. They're called um, Underground uh, Underground Bases and Underwater Bases by Richard uh, Sauter, Ph.D. And he wrote another book called Underground Bases, Bases and Tunnel, Why the Government uh, is Trying to Hide. What What is the government trying to hide? And he uses primary sources in this, and he finds... A lot of evidence that the the military, specifically the Army Corps of Engineers, have been looking at UFO sightings, um, and they've been building underground tunnels. So a lot of these, you kind of wonder if a lot of these underwater bases are ours. Um, And he said the reason they were looking into this was for continuity of government research and then maybe it's possible with the, some kind of extraterrestrial um, joint venture. So, I don't know. It's pretty cool. I like USOs, and I like the fact that there's a lot of evidence to show that, you know, maybe you know, maybe we're more involved in there than we're, we're letting on. Uh, and you kind of wonder the same thing with the UFOs. How many of them are ours, and how many of them are really unknown aliens? So that's that would be my intro to that. That's very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, I, I, I um, live over here in Hawaii, and on the island, big island, people talk about, I think it's out, off of Captain Cook. They see crap going in and out of the water all the time. Uh, so that's one of the things I've never seen personally, but I've heard all these stories about people seeing them going in and out of the water. But I was on Johnston Atoll, which is a military base, 800 miles southwest of Hawaii. And in the um, December of 1996, during one of my abductions, <laughs> um, or I called it abductions, but it, I, there's other, there's more information emerging once I, the more I go into it, right? But I was. Uh, taken on board a craft that launched itself and it went under the water. So it was able to land on, on the beach Then it flew into the air and it went underwater. And if you look at Johnson Atoll, I'll have to include a picture of it, there's a part where it's very deep. The water is so dark, dark blue. And the story is that back in World War II, the, the U.S. government dug it out really deep there so that, um, you know, uh, what do you call it, nuclear subs or subs could go in there, right, because it was supposed to be some kind of way station for the ships that were heading to the South Pacific for the war. But I've had witnesses uh, come forth and they say, no, there's an underwater, underground facility there. It goes down 13, 14 floors. And uh, Dr. Michael Solom wrote a report about in 2009 there was a meeting at, at uh, Cal 
island at Johnson Atoll. Johnson Atoll is a series of really tiny islands. I mean, you could you could walk it in half an hour. <laughs> you know, some of these little tiny islands. There's full of wildlife of birds, right? So uh, apparently, there's a much more uh, involved facility there connecting the under uh, the islands through underwater channels. So. And then I had this whole adventure, and I'm not going to go into it here. I've written about it in my book, under in the underground underwater facility, and interacted with the greys and humans and hybrids and <laughs> reptilians and all kinds of stuff, Anunnaki. But I don't want to take up this show with that. So I think they're they could be. Um, Aliens, they could be humans. We have reverse-engineered vehicles. The story I get is that the humans uh, have alliances with many different extraterrestrial species, and there's a lot of exchange goes on. But that's the back-end story, and they're not telling us this stuff. So we have the stuff that comes through other channels, and then we have the official story, and it just makes me wonder if we're ever going to get any kind of truth out of this. There's um uh I in this book that I was telling you about, there's a I was looking for it while you were there. It's it's a Army Corps of actually it's a US Naval Ordnance Test Station, China Lake, California. It's uh, an abstract research paper by C. F. Austin, Manned Undersea Structures, the Rock Rock Site Concept. And I've seen he quotes this in the book with a source, so I assume it's accurate since it was published in a book. I would hope he would fact check it. I did find the actual document in PDF on the Army Corps of Engineers website, so that pretty much confirmed that it was accurate. And it says, large undersea installations with a short sleeve environment have existed under the continental shelf for many decades. The technology now exists using off-the-shelf petroleum, mining, submarine, and nuclear equipment to establish permanent manned installations within the sea floor that do not have any air umbilical or connections with the land or water surface, yet maintain a normal one atmosphere environment within. So this was released in December December 6, 1966. So if they knew that back in 66, you can only imagine what they have down there now. Just it's an interesting concept. Prasanna, your turn. Yeah. Well, I don't, I'm just enjoying listening to you guys. All of this <laughs> stuff is very valid. Uh, like, how much do ancient aliens and contemporary aliens in, in uh, concert with our own governments uh, develop these areas? for specific purposes, like in mm-hmm. Hawaii. Um, and most of us, or mo- many people, they just look at the map and go, boy, that water's deep, <laughs> right? Yeah. But they have no way of connecting the dots to what that means. And even we don't. And we're sitting here talking about possibilities but connecting the dots with what very likely could be happening there is a 
a gargantuan uh, task. And that's what we need to be working on. How many of our UFO, how many of our underground and above ground um, military bases are in some way connected to ancient alien sites? And Mm. we're just carrying forward the next generation and we're doing it without the knowledge of the American people. It's like, okay, well, we have a military budget. <coughs> and we don't have to share this with you. But um, just like in Hawaii, what's really there? How long has it been there? How was it anciently used? And that was it. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, if you're here for thousands of years, what better place to hide than in the ocean? I mean, we've only explored Mm -hmm. a small fraction of the ocean. We don't have access to the rest of it. It's too deep. We have to use little tiny submersibles, so it's a slow search process. It's the perfect place to hide if you're a, if you're an advanced civilization on this planet. Um, pretty water much left covers, to your own devices. Water covers seventy percent of the planet. Yeah, yeah. It's, so you've got to we know so little. We don't. And we know, know so that. little about it. Yeah. So, so thanks for bringing that up. No, you're welcome. No problem. I'd like okay, to know. We have another. Go ahead, dear. No, like I was just gonna... ask a question. Well, uh, there's not much I can ask about Connecticut. Very little of Connecticut is really Bigfoot country, or mm-hmm. your whole country. Think right. So we can just uh, open up the field and ask about anything you want. We're just we're free flowing right now. Just talk about what you want. And since we're all three researchers, we'll just talk about what we know. <laughs> we can only talk well, about what we me. know, right? So, yeah. So go ahead. Ask. Let's ask a question to each other. Where would you like to go with this? Well, um, I'd like to go get a map and start tracking down mound builders' sites in Connecticut. Connecticut is such, such a tiny little state. And it's just almost like an adjunct to a very large region of mound builders and ancient um, phenomena. Mm-hmm. You know, like the Christians. Well, I would like to learn what you, you find about that. So um, <laughs> I, I would be very interested to know. Because I've never actually done any research into that for Connecticut. Um all my time is focused like on UFOs or uh, giving like lectures or speeches on cryptozoology um, to know more it's, about that if you can. Well, that's a whole project. So, is, um, <laughs> is there a, how many Bigfoot groups are there in Connecticut? 
none that's official that I know of. None that's organized. There is, there's, there are, and as for UFO groups, I don't mean to brag, but I think that MUFON Connecticut is like the only established one. There might be like people that talk amongst themselves, but as for organized groups, we're really it. And um, it's, it's, yeah, it's basically us. I don't know of anything else other than us in, in Connecticut. In the surrounding areas, there's a lot of other UFO organizations in Massachusetts and New Hampshire and in, in upstate New York, um, both MUFON chapters themselves and independent UFO organizations. But in Connecticut, there really is just us. And I've been doing this for... Um, since like 2003 with MUFON and no one's ever reached out to me from another organization in Connecticut been all over the states and they definitely have enough coverage so people would know that we're there so um, uh, maybe they're just quiet How many reports do you think you get in a year? We get Probably, well, I can tell you real quick. Let me log into the database. We have seven this month. I can tell you that. Um, let me, if you want to come back to me, I'll log into our database and I'll give you an exact number. It'll just take me a second to, to log in. Okay. But we don't get a lot, not, not compared to some of the other things. So Connecticut is, is pretty much a quiet state. We Did are you say that? well, like I was telling you, you know, we're getting um, we're getting a, a more reports of U.S. UFOs um, of triangle shapes. That's that's kind of you know what's going on. But otherwise, yeah, we're a pretty quiet state. Let me, I'm just putting it in now. Uh, let's see, search. Uh, da, 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 da. Uh, we had 98 cases last year. That's not a lot. Very I saw a map that I saw a map that Tom Conwell did of uh, you know putting push buttons. <laughs> and so uh, when you look at uh, Hawaii and you look at Maui, there's so many push buttons in Maui that you can't even see the island. It's just one, one big thing. So I don't know how, how that equates to sightings, but apparently there's a lot of sightings here. Now here's a, a an article. I, I searched Connecticut Mound Builders, and it's a search for the mysterious stone builders of New England. Uh, scattered throughout the woods and fields of New England lie the remains of an ancient civilization, being settlement. Uh, standing stone circles, hundreds of impressive and elaborate stone chambers, massive balance stones, over one million stone carns, C-A-I-R-N, stone animals, effigies, solstice and equinox markers. Anyway, this goes back um, before European settlements. So this kind of looks like, yeah, maybe there are mounds. It's all through New England. So it might go as far as Connecticut, but I can't find anything specifically. Um, oh, they mentioned Salem, Salem, New Hampshire. Um, anyway, interesting article. I'll put the link in our, our our show page for today. You might want to look at that. 
But so anyway, Mike, what is the most, what is the most interesting UFO case that you I worked um I worked an abduction case once in Fairfield County that was really interesting and I never really had a clear resolution on it. Um it was a witness who lived alone with his son and he it, so the it happened on a, a Friday night and the son was out it was he was at a sleepover so it was just the father and he was in his bed he heard a loud boom and his door flings open and he sees a mist light white light and wow he three, he sees three creatures coming over to him and he describes them as like gray aliens i mean that's the best description you can get they're probably little grays and they come up to him and they talk to him telepathically, you know, where's your son? And he's like, well, he's not here. He's out of sleepover. And they said to him, don't worry. And he doesn't remember anything after that. And we investigated this sighting um, as pretty thoroughly as we could. We we talked to the guy several times. We went down and we visited with him. Um, we looked at the radiate we did a radiation test there was no radiation nothing wrong with the electromagnetic field um we we left uh night vision uh cameras there on its own dvr recorder and battery backup for a week and when we came back a week later the cameras were fine we tested the cameras they worked fine the hard drive that we used the standalone hard drive and recorder Hard drive was fried. It was all pixelated, and we don't quite know what caused it. I, my guess would be if you were to take like a very high-powered magnet or something like that, or some kind of EM pole, or I don't know, EM, but some kind of electromagnetic effect, um, just fried it. And if you take like a, a magnet and you stick it on a hard drive, you can affect it that way. The witness said he didn't tamper with the hard drive. There was I was on his own battery backup. So it was independent of the powers of the house. Um, like I said, the cameras were fine. There was no damage to the cameras. We could run them at night, and they showed clear images. It was just a hard drive, and it was weird. It was, it was just electronic memory, the magnetic huh? memory. I said it was just the magnetic memory that was affected. Right, exactly. What was interesting, though, about this case is um, – uh, it, how do I say this? Um, how do I say this? That's polite. He never lied. Uh-oh. Like so, when you tell a story, well, you guys probably experience when you tell a story, you you know you got the story correct, but you you, know, you always tell it slightly different. You know, you maybe you you talk a little bit more about something on one part of the story, you talk a little less about the other part. Maybe you you transpose some of the events. You know what I'm kind of talking about. But what's interesting about this witness is what he said the first time we talked to him is the exact thing he said every time we talked to him since. His story never changed. It was always, um, it was in chronological order and it was exactly the same story. 
And he used, we used to talk to him periodic for about a year out. And even after a year, he never added to the story. He never subtracted to the story. He never changed the chronology of the story or told the story in a different way or what happened. It was, it was um, always exact. It, to me, it reminded me like if you were an actor and you, you were reading your script lines. It was that perfect. But it also could have been that he it was so scared into his memory. It was like seared into his memory because he was so scared from the event. That could be a reason. Um, or it could be that the memory was programmed into him to be like that. So that he remembered That's exactly right. like that. And um, what's also interesting to me is that only a portion of the hard drive was affected and it didn't affect the entire hard drive. Exactly. Yeah. It was very specific and it didn't affect any of the, any of the other equipment. The cameras are fine. The battery backup was fine. Um, it was almost like they were destroying the evidence to whatever was happening. Maybe he was abducted again. Maybe he wasn't. Um, so I don't know. It's, it's a really interesting case. They, you know, uh, there was no effects of, on the ground. There was no evidence of anything on the ground. Or it was in March, so the ground was frozen. So it wouldn't, you wouldn't have like footprints or anything like that. But it was a weird case. And then you know the other thing that was weird is you know the the, the bedroom door because he locked his bedroom door. It looked like it had marks around the locking mechanism, like someone took a screwdriver and kind of jimmied the door open. Aliens don't jimmy doors open so when when they when they go in, usually they either go through the doors or they take you out some other way. But, you know, it's, it's very, very interesting. It was, it was a lot of contradictions to cases. But at the same time, you know, you had a lot of the, um, he mentions later on in the in the interview, he, you know, he, the, the, the fog, the mist, the description of the alien, his story never changed. And he was visibly shaken. I mean, when we, when we went down to talk to this guy in person, he was, shaking like a leaf. I mean, whatever he believed, truly he believed what happened to him. So, you know, it was, he had no marks, physical marks to his body um, that we could see. So, I don't know. It was really interesting. You know, we, we did that a lot is. of investigation that like, I don't really want to say on, on the air, but we did look into this to the best of our ability, um, given the resources that we have. And, you know, it, it was it was an interesting case. It was an interesting abduction case. That is. You know, it sounds almost like that case could have military connections because of the the uh, marks around the lock. Mm-hmm. That's something a human would do. ETs don't do that. Yeah. What does this guy do for a living? He worked in sanitation. In what? Sanitation. He's a garbage man. He's a garbage man, or whatever you call. Oh my gosh! How that's even more interesting. Right. So he's not like a. He's a he's a blue collar worker. It's it's he's not like a, uh, you know, like a ex military or anything like that. He he he, he's a he's a. He's about as average Joe as you can get when you look into his background. You know, he's just a guy that has a son that works as a garbage man. You know, it's, 
said, okay. But uh, it was it was an interesting case. And there's a lot more to it that I, I don't really want to say over the air. But we I can tell you that, you know, we, we really, really investigated this to the best of our ability. And we looked under every rock. And we couldn't, we couldn't disprove it that it was it didn't happen. But there was some inconsistencies to it that we just don't know, like the door handle, the fact that his story never changed, the fact that the the hard drive was destroyed. Um, there was no physical effects to the radiation or electromagnetic field in the area. And we did several readings um, on that. So I don't know. Wow, that's a story. Huh? That's a very interesting story. We're looking at the, it sounds like programming. This is the story. They've hardwired it into them. It's almost like you just push a button and it replays again. Uh, Because normally people do bellish and make more up, but as they tell the tale, they recover more. A lot of people start mm-hmm. getting more details, and so some people criticize. Well, there's, you didn't say it the first time. It's like it's like the Russian dolls. It, it, everything's embedded one memory into another, yeah. and uh, we do this. I, I'm a I'm a, a counselor and dealing with psychology. And when someone tells a tale again, um, you know, 20 years later, and they can be talking about anything, they can be talking about some kind of you know, abuse they had as a child, and then they'll go, oh, now I'm just remembering this and that. So that in itself, where he's not saying anything additional, and now is he saying it's the same person or other people, or you're just witnessing it, or what was going on there? I'm sorry, was I just witnessing Was he just witnessing? Yeah, when he I was witnessing it with my... It uh-huh. was me and my fellow investigator, Bob. We both were the only two people that interviewed him. But we interviewed him separately. We never, when we did, we, when we, we went together to his house, we always go to the houses in pairs for safety purposes. We don't go to someone's house by ourselves. We interviewed him, obviously, together. But we did do phone interviews prior to meeting him, and we both did independent phone interviews. And we do phone interviews before we go to someone's house just to gauge who they are. Like, are they nuts? Because if they sound nuts on the phone, there's no way we're going to go to their house. I mean, you know, with today's world, you got to be it's safety first. So we always right. do like a preliminary screening to make sure that, you know, this person sounds reasonable, they're, you know, they're stable, all that. And I can go into stories on, on that, that we've gone to, we've decided not to go to houses after talking to them on the phone. We're just like, there's... This is not safe. Um, but so, yeah, we talked, we both, and we, when we compared our notes, there was the same story. And we, you're like, yeah, that, that's what he told me. Yeah, that's what he told me. That's what he told me. And then when we went down together, we talked to him at the same time, and he told us the same story. But again, he never varies. And when you ask him follow-up questions, the script always it always goes back to the script the answer to his, to the question so it was it was it was, it, it was interesting and then after that <laughs> we would follow up with them individually over the phone um, when we went back to get the cameras we we went together but again that's because of we always go together to someone's house 
So we try to do it as, as objectively as possible to make sure that, you know, we each heard a different story. And even that way, I mean, if you usually two people, you know, hear different stories because the witness always tells it slightly different, but he never did. It was the same exact story. So that I don't is know, but you're right. It does seem like it was programmed. And we, and we have considered that, too. Um, but we don't know why he would be picked by the military if it was the military or if it was some other organizations. I mean, there's nothing that would stand out to say why this person was picked over someone else. But maybe that's something that has to do with his genes or his, or his you know, health or he's some kind of long-term experiment. I mean, who knows what the reason could be if that is the case he was picked by them. Wow. Right. That's we don't know their criteria as to why they choose certain people, but it could be genetic. There's a lot of people. They're they're apparently looking for, you know, the metagene, the ability to, you know, be psychic and telepathic and all that stuff and have human kind of like superpowers, right? So they're looking for that. Um, anyway. That's all my thoughts on that. So maybe they, or maybe he got into some really interesting trash. <laughs> what did you? That's a possibility. Maybe they're person? trying to shut him up or discredit him. You know who knows? Yeah, yeah. I mean, what so, better way to discredit so someone than to say they were abducted by aliens? That's true. That's true. Yeah, and then that's the whole thing about how when you're doing your research, do you find many? Um, uh, military abductions in my labs. Uh, I've done well. Connecticut, as you said, is, is very very quiet. We've had, I've done three abduction cases, and um, one of which we actually did not pursue because the person was ex-military and and had more signs of PTSD than abduction. Uh, so wow. we didn't pursue that. So, I don't know. It, it, that, that's about as close as we got to a military connection with, with abductions mm-hmm. that I know of in Connecticut since I've been state director. Mm-hmm. Wow. What's, what's happening with your research into um, abductee contactees? I don't so do you're not too much just doing lights in the sky. So you yeah, don't do so how that works is well, we do it two ways. So you got let's say we get a case of an abduction in Connecticut. It would go two ways. It'll go to our abduction research team, um, which is headed by Kathy Martin. And she has a whole team, they're they're trained in this and they'll do the more I don't know, like maybe the head shrinking is probably the good way. You know, they'll they'll look at the abduction part as as, this, as it relates to the sighting. We would do the abduction as a physical investigation. So we'd go and, you know, maybe like set up the cameras, interview the witness in person. Um, we would look for the physical trace evidence, things like that. We're more of the we would do more of the physical side of it. They would do more of the let's figure out what happened in the abduction part, if that makes sense. So there's, you know, we're like the boots on the ground. They're like the ones that, you know, do the head shrinking, I guess. Is maybe. The hardware and the software. Mm-hmm. Right, the hardware and the software. <laughs> it's a good way to think about it, yeah. So, and then the cases get 
merged together and a conclusion is made like, you know, what, you know, was this most likely an abduction? Yes or no. What Kathy does, what, what the ERT team does with their part of the data, I don't know. You'd have to interview Kathy on that and see what, what they do. On our end, we would close it out as, you know, um, an abduction and, and move on to the next case because that's what we do as field investigators in Connecticut um, and field investigators in general. <laughs> um, personally, I don't really do abduction research. I more like the military UFO connections, so I like to look into that. Um, like the TRP that we were talking about earlier and things of that length, the Black Triangle. Um, some of the so I, I like that aspect, and that's what kind of interests me. I'm a huge aviation buff, so to look at, at the military and UFO connection is more that would interest me uh, on a personal level. And USOs, I, I'm in, I'll do more look, looking into that. But as for Connecticut, it's mostly I research the cases, try and determine as best as I can what the witness saw and close it out and move to, on to the next one. Go ahead, Kristana. Well, how um, questions? How how many um, abductions or not? That's the wrong. How many reports do you find just don't hold up? Out of ten, how many would you say you would find? Out of ten reports, how many reports do you think you might find that just didn't pan out? It wasn't what they thought it was. Um, well, let me put it to you this way. I think a lot of our cases get should be closed as like insufficient data for two reasons. Um, mostly it's due to lack of information. A lot of our witnesses will report something to us in a database, but then they won't when we try and contact them to get more information or to get a better description or to do follow-up questions, they won't respond. So, you know, you, you have what they wrote and that's it. And a lot of people do that just because they want to feel like, well, I feel like I, I have to document this. Okay. I documented it. Now I'm done. And, you know, I got it off my chest. It's out there. It's in the database. MUFON can handle it from there. And sometimes with those cases, the problem with that is, is that, you know, put a lot of information in their description. People think that, but I can't tell you how many times they will put a date down and a time down of a sighting. And then you talk to them and they're like, well, no, it actually happened on this date. Well, then why did you put this sighting time and date down? It's wrong. Oh, well, you know, I wasn't really paying attention. So, it's true. And so a lot of times the information we get is not accurate because they don't put it in accurately. So we might actually be investigating something that is on the wrong date and time. And that's happened. So we we would, someone would say, well, I saw a triangle, you know, on March 8th. And so we'll go and we'll investigate this as if it's March 8th. We can't find anything on that because it turns out after finally getting in touch with the witness, it happened on April 8th. Well, that's a whole month apart. You know, that, oh. And then that's if we get the witness. So it's, it's a frustrating part of the field 
And, it, you know, when people ask me, do you, you know, how do I go about reporting a UFO sighting? Because that always, it's a question you always get. It's, I saw something, how do I report it? And I tell them, go to the MUFON.com or go to our website, MUFONCT.com. You can fill out, the, there's a form there. Fill it out, put as much detail as you can, but then be open to having our investigators contact you because there's so much more information that we need that is not included in the report. So it's not so much that people hoax us, and we do get a hoax every now and again. Like, it's just blatantly like a lie. I think one time someone tried to say they saw Elvis. I mean, you know, come on. Maybe it wasn't Elvis, but, you know, it was something crazy like that. But it was absolutely ridiculous, and we closed it as a hoax and moved on. But we, because we take this so seriously, we really do investigate every case that comes in. And what happens more often than not is that it's not, the cases are not panning out because we don't have enough information. We, we lack information. Or cases are reported as historical and, you know, they happened in 1970. Well, it's 2019. There's not a lot we can do to investigate something that happened in 1970, you know, so... Um, sometimes things don't pan out and we can't determine what they saw because of lack of information. I don't, I don't know if that answered your question. I might have gone completely off topic. But I no, think I think I did. it does. It answers it nicely. I've encountered the same phenomena mm-hmm. where people have not, I am not a UFO investigator, but sometimes I've had people come to me and tell me their stories yeah. and I can't do anything with it because they don't have enough information, they forgot something, or they just made an error in judgment. Right. Right. They thought it was something, and then later they realized, no, it wasn't. Right. So that's the reason you need investigators like you. Yeah. Who will go out and verify the data. You absolutely must verify that data. Do it because it is an important study, but every bit of the data must be verified in some way. Yeah. So I I do understand what you're dealing with, and even eliminating a case because of insufficient information is important. Yeah. And it's important. So, um, I don't have the patience <laughs> myself. But I admire the people who do. The they have it the patience. It does patient. get tiring. Yeah. Pardon me. It does get tiring and and wears on you. But thank you. And but that. tedious. And I do appreciate people who can do that, because to me, I just, I just get impatient hmm. um, with the process. <clears throat> yeah. Well, I, I have a question. Is. I have a question. Uh, are, so now that we've been doing this for a while with these reports, is there a database? And let's say someone does say, I remember something from, you know, 1970s, and I know it was because, you know, my parents were driving, we were going up to Connecticut or something, you know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. Is there somewhere you could tie that in and maybe there were other people that had a similar sighting around that time? even though they didn't report it until much later because it just wasn't working out to report it back in those days. All right. So MUFON has a database called the Case Management System, CMS for short. And there's two 
two sides to that. There's the public side and there's the investigator side. If you're a member of MUFON, you have access to the public side, which will show you um, where you can search the database by description and witness. It'll give you everything of the witness's statement except the identity of the witness. It won't give you any personal information like the witness's name, phone number, email, address, anything like that. It won't show you that, but it'll show you the other, the public side of it. So if you are a member and you want to say, you know, let's, you know, is there any UFO sightings of triangles in, you know, Orlando, Florida in the 1990s? You can go into the search database and you can type in those parameters and pull that up in the public database. You can also go on to a website called UFO Stalker, um, which is mirrors the case management system. So whatever is there um, shows on our system. So you can go there as well if you're not a member of the fund, but that will give you um, access to it, the same kind of information. If you're a field investigator and you are a, a full-time field investigator for MUFON and you're certified, you would have access to the CMS database in, in its entirety, meaning you would be able to access the witness information and um, contact them. Um, but you'd have to follow the pr protocols of being a MUFON investigator. So for the non-member the non who is a field investigator, they can use UFO Stalker. If you're a member of MUFON, you can actually search the public database. Interesting. Is there, okay. Go ahead. Is there an area in Connecticut that, like a, a 10 square mile area, for example, that you believe has more UFO sightings than any other single area in Connecticut. Like, is there a locus? Now, I know that the, the uh, wooded area is um, serves that purpose for the cryptids. But how mm -hmm. about for UFOs? Well, right now, it, it, for a small area, probably um, between in the Danbury area, Danbury to, like, Westport, Connecticut, that's in the Fairfield County area. Um, uh -huh. For a region, it'll be along the New York-Connecticut border. So it'll be Fairfield County into Litchfield County and a little bit into, like, Middlesex. So it'll go to, like, New Haven, Connecticut. It's actually a triangle, ironically enough. It'd be if you would go from New Haven to Danbury down to, like, Fairfield, it's it's a, it's a odd odd-shaped triangle. But it, that area would be um, a hotbed of UFO activities. That's where a lot of our cases have been coming in the last few months, and um, it seems to be a study area. Even over the past, when cases would come from other parts of the state, we would always get a case or two from that location. Um, <clears throat> but the region is along the Connecticut-New York border. That area is a pretty hotbed of activity. Is that uh, how does that compare with uh, Bigfoot sightings in terms of area? Is well, it within Bigfoot the Bigfoot area? Not the triangle I mentioned. The triangle I mentioned is in the lower part along the shoreline in Fairfield County. 
Danbury, New Haven, and Stanford are all in the Fairfield County area. Bigfoot sightings is in Litchfield County, one town up. Um, so they're they're near each other, um, but they're not touching each other. So there's no correlation with that respect. However, general area of sightings, uh, if you were to take not like a concentration of UFO sightings, but just UFO sightings over a longer concentration area, meaning like a region, then yes, you could see a, a little bit of a trend where in Fairfield County there is a lot more sightings than say in Collin County, or um, which is on the other side of the state, or um, New London County, which is along the other side of the state but on the shoreline. Uh, so, or Wyndham County, for example, which is is on the far far end along the Rhode Island border, Connecticut Rhode Island border and Massachusetts, that's Wyndham County. We get very, very few sightings, if any, from there. So most of our sightings are along the other side of the state. Really? Mm -hmm. How about historically? Do you know if there was historically that's always been the case? I don't know about the historical part. I mean, so MUFON, Connecticut is unique. So he... Back in the 90s, MUFON had a, a membership drop, and Connecticut MUFON actually was merged into what was called New England MUFON. And it was one chapter. It was Connecticut, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine. The whole New England region was New England MUFON. We have right. one member in our chapter right now is who was a member of New England MUFON. Everyone since then is of Connecticut. I bring, I'll get back to why this is important in a second, but um, when this one member was involved with the chapter, it was only like three people. When I came in to be a field investigator with MUFON, the new director, the new executive director of MUFON broke the chapter up into individual states again. So Connecticut MUFON formed only a few months before I became state director. In fact, there was another state director at the time, and I was just a field investigator. When he, when I started, it was the director, um, the state director, this one member I told you about, and two other field investigators. So there was five of us that made up the Connecticut MUFON, MUFON Connecticut chapter. And from there, that director left and I took over only about five or six months later. Um, he had a, his job, he got a promotion on his job. He didn't have time to be a director anymore. I mentioned that. So there was only five of us. And I, I mentioned that because the history of sightings and UFOs, a lot of that was lost because there was no, literally no one around in Connecticut to document that for MUFON Connecticut. There was five members. Well, there was three members and then two um, this guy Rick and myself started to bring it to five at the same time. So, to answer your question, there was really no way to look that up. We can look in the database. Um, it, I haven't really done that, but there's no like living legend, I guess you could say, that can actually sit down and say, "Well, you know, I've been involved with UFO investigations in Connecticut for 20 years. I've been a member of MUFON Connecticut for 20 years," and. You know, this is the progression of UFO sightings in Connecticut. There's no one that can tell you that 
because there's literally no one that exists that can do that. So it's it's kind of lost. It would be a good research project to do someday, but uh, I just I, I haven't focused on that. But um, other states, you know, they've been around forever and they have that. You know, they they have that history that they can talk about. Unfortunately, Connecticut doesn't have that because we just didn't exist until about five years ago. You were just what until five years? We didn't exist until five years ago. We didn't exist until five years ago. So there is. We're glad you're here. (laughs) Well, thank you. Yeah, yeah, we're glad you stepped up, and so that's uh, you know another thing is uh, where are these people to do this research? It's this is all volunteers. Nobody's getting paid. Uh, You just do this because of your love for the work, right? That's exactly it. We just love it, and we 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 do it in between our day jobs, nine to five, our families, um, and any other life responsibilities we have. So, uh, and I, I hope people understand that you know there's a lot that's involved. So sometimes people can be very demanding; they want like immediate satisfaction. It's like, well, you know, let me. Yeah, you know, it's we're volunteers here. We have we can we'll do it as best we can. And, we do an excellent job in Connecticut. We take it very, very seriously, and we will investigate every sighting that is sent to us. It just takes time. Ryan, so we that's ask people great. To we be appreciate you doing it. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah. So we're uh, winding down. We have six minutes left. What would we like to focus on in the last few minutes that we're going to be here on this show? What would you like to talk about? What do you want our listeners to know, both of you? What do they need to know about your work and things that interest you? You know, I think it's important. It's important for listeners to understand that the what he just described as the love of the of the field, the love of the work itself is what has driven UFO investigations and that these people have built the infrastructure of UFO knowledge since the 1940s. It's like what we know about UFO primarily from this level of people who just want to get the knowledge gathered and published or gathered and disseminated, that there is no federal agency that's responsible or even participates in it. And that is a huge factor in the UFO phenomena. The contributions that the individuals have made is just phenomenal. We wouldn't have the knowledge we do have without them. So I'm I'm patting you on the back, Mike. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, well, I hope we it's, a, it's for a good you commitment. We, yeah, and I hope we uh, we do good and we uh, make everyone proud because we try try real hard in Connecticut to make sure that we, you know we we do accurate work and. Get the, get the word out because 
UFOs and UFO investigation is, is a serious thing, and I wish people would take it more seriously and not think of us as the crazy people with the tinfoil hats. And unfortunately, I think maybe you might experience this too. You still get that a lot when you go out, do a lecture or something. You get the skeptics, and it's fine to be skeptical, but I think people need to be respectful and open-minded too and listen to our evidence. You know, don't be so judgmental to us just because, you know, before you hear us out. I think there's a lot of evidence to show that UFOs are visiting us and involved with us. And and, and, um, and what bothers me is that people are so quick to judge us and so quick to dismiss us without listening to us. You know, if you hear our case and you hear us out and then you say, nah, I don't believe it. Well, that's fine. That's fair. It's your opinion. But hear us out. That's what always bothers me. Well, that kind of reaction is a defense mechanism. You know, it's defending a reality that they want to be true. And it it, uh, dismisses the facts of what you're telling them. So to make their reality true, they have to dismiss you. Mm -hmm. So... um, as time goes on, it's really important what you're doing and to document it so that the next generation of researcher can pick up on what you've done. Because this, these phenomena, I'll tell you what, if the UFO phenomena was going to disappear into oblivion, it would have done that in 1952 with the Robertson panel. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. It didn't What's the Robertson appear? panel? What's the Robertson panel? It was a group of, um, I don't even know who appointed them. It could have been the CIA appointed them to uh, investigate the facts and the reality of UFOs. And uh, they attempted to eliminate it, but they just couldn't. I mean, there's so much actual data. We're running data. out of time. I just got the 90-second warning, so last word. Okay. Go ahead, Mike. Well, thank you for having me on the show. I enjoyed talking with you too tonight, and I think we had a great discussion, and I hope the people that are listening um, found some topics Your that they find. Mufonct.com, M-U-F-O-N. MUFONCT.com, M-U-F-O-N-C-T.com. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chrisana. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, listeners. And we'll be back again next week. And much love and blessings. And aloha. And hold on. i got to close the show up. Aloha, everybody. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.